Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So, hello, I'm here with Azra Raza, who is an oncologist at Columbia University in New York. And I interviewed Azra a year ago, and it was a very surprising interview. I didn't know her. She didn't know me. I read her book, The First Cell. It was a very, well, it's hard to describe this book if you haven't already read it, but it is Oncologist Cuts a Vein and Bleeds about her frustration with a calcified system that is essentially stuck in the 1970s you know and this is a person who cares very deeply about her patients I think it's very easy if you really know doctors and surgeons and people like that it's very easy for people in the medical field to emotionally wall themselves off and isolate and just go into their head and be professional and not really deal with the emotions and the trauma and the heartache and the suffering. And it's perfectly understandable that somebody who has to go to work every day and deal with dying people would do that. It's not like any of us can't understand that that happens. But Azra has not done that. Um, and she has chosen to keep her heart open, which is, it's a much more painful road and she becomes friends with her dying patients. And then as a result of her husband dying of cancer and his daughter's best friend dying of cancer, it suddenly pushed her to, I have to talk about this. Now, we're not gonna cover the old ground that we covered last time. And if you wanna hear all of that story, you should go back and, and listen. It's at evo2.org slash Azra. There's a transcript. You can read it. You can listen to it. You can watch it on video. And I encourage you to do that. I think it's, it's probably the best interview I've ever done, I think. And again, it, it just kind of caught me by surprise. It was just like, it just came out the way that it came out. And then another thing Azra talks about is that over the last 30 years, she's collected 60 thousand tissue samples of patients who, am I correct, that they had to have marrow extracted from their bones in order to get these tissue samples. Uh, not all of them had to have this done. You did it, but you got permission and they did it. It was painful. So everybody has skin in the game. And not only that, you paid for the freezers to put all this stuff in with your own money you know, to, to make this happen. And then, uh, well, another characteristic I found of revolutionary scientists is a very high propensity to spend their own money or to take severe reputational risks in order to further their research, because even though nobody else believes in it, they believe in it, 
right? So Azra is a skin in the game scientist too. So like that's the setup. And about a month ago, Azra said, Perry, can we have another interview? And I'm like, sure, in a hot second, what do you wanna talk about? And she said, I don't wanna talk about what's wrong with cancer today. I wanna to talk about what's right. I wanna talk about what we can do that's new and just before the interview went live, we were talking about, and you know, if we really have a good model, if we really have a good theory, we don't need a platoon of PhDs from Caltech in order to understand it. We ought to be able to explain it to a high school dropout. And I'm like, okay. So I don't really know what she, I got an idea, but I don't really know what she's got today. She's got a PowerPoint, she's got some videos and Azra, you have the floor. Wow, what an introduction. Perry, you never uh, let me down. You always outdo yourself and you have managed to intimidate me with those wonderful, prominently displayed 8020 and Evolution 2.0, my favorite books. And I'm a big admirer, as you know. And one of the most unusual people I've uh, met, really. Uh, haven't met physically yet, but I feel like we are old friends. Yeah. And I think one of the most important things you said just now is about our connection to the human angle in all of the conversations we have. That I have tried to look at everything regarding cancer through the prism of a patient's anguish. And my working principle comes from Emily Dickinson. Surgeons must be very careful when they test the knife, for underneath their fine incisions rests the culprit, life. That's what we are talking about. And I asked uh, permission from Perry to share a few slides with you to show you the kind of different model that I would like to present today regarding cancer. So Perry, until now causes of cancer are some hereditary susceptibility like BRCA1 or two genes causing women to be susceptible to breast or ovarian or uterine cancer. Some pathogens, hepatitis B virus can cause liver cancer. Uh, of course, exposure everyone knows about can cause cancer. But with all of this, it only accounts for like 20% of all cancers. So where are the other 80% coming from? And the current working theory is that, oh, it's these spontaneous mutations that occur. What are spontaneous mutations? Every time one of our bodies, trillions of cells divides, it has to double its DNA and the DNA enzyme can make copying errors, which is a mutation. And so these mutations start to build up as we age because more and more cells are dividing. And the current idea is that these are spontaneous random mutations that build up and eventually cancer is a disease of old age. That's where they have become uh, numerous enough or by chance, one of the mutations happens in a vital. So DNA copying error means that the double strand of the DNA has to open up and a polymerase, a machinery of proteins will walk down and add the complementary bases. It can make a mistake. One mistake is all it needs and the mistake is called a mutation. I'm basically challenging this model, first of all. It is not a random mutation. No, it is not. 
Yes, I'm saying it's a deliberate response of normal cells to what? To stress. What kind of stress? What I just told you, infections, inflammations, autoimmune problems, toxins. Now in the 1970s model, it's a very reductionist approach that a cell dividing makes a copying error. There's the DNA mutation now right here. And then this is accompanied by giving a growth advantage to this clone of cells. They resist death. They keep dividing. They lack growth control. They make new blood vessels, invade, and go to other organs. So these are the six hallmarks of cancer that have been proposed by Weinberg and Hahn. These have now been increased to 12. And then Henry Heng takes this apart in his beautiful book, uh, showing they can keep increasing. They're up to 18 now. And the whole idea of treatment, Perry, so far has been the reductionist strategy to simply retrace our steps back to that first mutation and then use a magic bullet to target that mutation. Well, this reductionist strategy turned out to be an unmitigated disaster because it worked in a couple of cancers early on. Uh, chronic myeloid leukemia, a acute promyelocytic leukemia, but those are exceptional things. Every other cancer turns out to have thousands of mutations. I just want to show you in the form of a Darwinian tree. A normal cell divides into two, gets a mutation, gets a growth advantage. And every time it divides, it gets more uh, mutations. It's capable of picking up more and more. So by the time we are diagnosing cancer, we are somewhere up here. Thousands of mutations in the cells. And we are trying to target it with one magic bullet that's going to attack one of these mutations. Wouldn't it be better to go here? That's the whole concept of early detection. The other thing I wanted to do, Perry, is something I appreciated that Dennis Noble said, that, look, artificial intelligence can never compete with cellular intelligence because in the cell, there are a trillion molecules that are floating in a liquid medium. I want to just show you 10 seconds of this video. Basically, the idea is that this is all happening in one cell. There are a trillion molecules floating, exchanging information. We are trying to replicate that on a solid silicone chip. And not only that, a chip with one input and one output. Yes. <laughs> I would love for you to comment on this and, and tell me where to go. So like you said, I started by studying acute leukemia. I went to study pre-leukemia because I thought things will be simpler and I could intercept these patients from developing leukemia. And at least the one good thing it did for me is I started to collect tissue on my patients. And now I have over 60,000 samples. They are longitudinally obtained as patients go from pre-leukemia to leukemia or die of their MDS. And the tissue repository is supported of all things. Imagine it's supported by patients. They want to give me money. I say, no, contribute to the tissue repository. And they do generously. It costs a million dollars just to maintain the repository. What? And it also, what? Yeah. I didn't know that. Wait, a million dollars per what? Per year because 
look, we I have to pay for the space I'm occupying for all these freezers, maintenance of freezers, and constant addition of new samples. And from the moment a biopsy, bone marrow biopsy tray is opened up, Perry, I pay for everything because they say, oh, you're going to take extra tissue for your research, then pay for it. So I have to pay for every single bone marrow. I do the runners who carry the uh, sample to the lab, people who separate cells. It's very expensive. That's why no one does it. I can do it because I held my first fundraiser when I moved to New York in the home of Hugh Jackman, who's <laughs> so supportive of our work. I mean, there are people who step up to help in these things. And I'm basically supporting the entire tissue repository for all these years based on philanthropy and money I raised from all over the place. No government institution, nobody supports this kind of things. Okay. So, Azra, so like, I'm sure like everybody's got this stereotype of, oh, you know, you're a rich doctor from New York City and you probably have a house in the Hamptons or something. And Azra is like, uh, making friends with Hugh Jackman doing fundraisers in New York City so she can spend a million dollars a year to freeze tissue sample. I mean, I was sort of wondering vaguely, I sort of knew that you had this thing. And I thought, I don't know, it probably costs a few thousand bucks a month for all those freezers. Where do you put them? Do they have an uninterruptible power supply with like generators and stuff? And it, what a million dollars a year? You didn't tell me this? Oh my word. It's a lot of money because it's very, that's why nobody does it. I'm the only single investigator in the world who has collected all these tissues. And I know, Perry, that no one appreciates it now. Only after I'm dead and gone will somebody resurrect and realize, oh, yeah, she was the one who did this. Uh, nobody was doing it. And I've been doing it since 1984. <laughs> it's not today. So the kind of longitudinal retrospective analysis we can do is so unique. Not a single cell is contributed by another oncologist. Like you said, I do every bone marrow myself with my own hands and draw the bloods myself and do the buccal smear myself for germline control. So, okay, so hang on, you need to now explain why this is useful and what we can do with this Yes. I don't want to sidetrack you too much, but you, you got to explain like, yes. the, the medical research significance of this. Well, the most important thing, Perry, is that uh, how do you study cancer? You can try to make models of cancer, try to grow cancer cells in the lab to study them. They die. So then people started studying uh, cancers in animals, but that has been an unmitigated disaster because those kinds of models have nothing to do with humans. And that's why 95% clinical trials that we bring, the drugs we bring from such models to the patient's bedside, 95% failed outright. And the 5% that succeed should have failed because they're only prolonging life by a couple of months for 20 to 30% people by and large. Now there are a few exceptions, less that accounts for a few thousand patients are helped by those things out of 1.8 million newly diagnosed cancers every year. So I don't want people to go home thinking negatively that I don't think any progress has occurred. No, tremendous progress has occurred in understanding of biology of cancer, 
but very little in terms of improving treatment. And I think the only way to improve it will be by studying human tissues. You know, uh, what Norbert Wiener said in 1940s, the best model for a cat is another cat, preferably the same one. So we know, Perry, that uh, if you eat ice cream and I eat ice cream, uh, you may put on 10 pounds and I'll put on nothing because my microbiome is different than yours. It's metabolizing things differently. It metabolizes drugs differently. It responds to cancer differently. So given that we are such individuals really in our responses to things, uh, we have to think the same way, preferably the same cat kind of approach. And that we can do by examining these spectrum of uh, these patients as they progress in the natural history of their disease, trace our way back to the very first cell, and then ask the question, why did this person who was perfectly healthy even get pre-leukemia? What is unique? And my approach that I'm going to show you now will make it possible to do it just with 10 cc's of blood sitting at home. You should be able to detect whether you have early steps of cancer or not. Wow. So the problem right now is that cancer is a silent killer. A one centimeter tumor has 3 billion cells and a 0.1 millimeter tumor already has 300,000 cells. So how am I planning to find the earliest cell? How do you find the first cell? This is a very big deal because if you can find that one needle in a haystack as soon as it happens, it would be very, very easy to fix it, right? Yes, exactly. That is the point. And the problem with our screening methods like mammograms, PSA, pap smears, colonoscopy is that they only detect at best stage one or two. I'm talking way years before stage one and two. Okay, so, so I, like yeah. stage 0.1 or stage 0.01? Is that what you mean? Like I'm saying the first cell. Well, Which right. So right. it's like stage 0. 0.001 cancer. No, even pre-cancer. I'm saying the earliest changes that would lead to cancer and the oh. formation of the first cell. And I'm saying it's a natural evolution of what we have been doing is to go to the next step and go really early, which means even pre-cancer. And in fact, monitor wellness to detect the disease perturbed uh, changes and diagnose illness before it becomes clinically apparent. One way we can do it, Perry, is very interesting to catch the first cell. You simply have to look into blood, use blood as a window into looking at changes and disease. And one of the things everyone must realize is that in fact, the earliest formation of cells for cancer start being shed into the blood. And they can be isolated by size because they're larger than blood cells, which are the smallest cells in the body. Mm. And literally, you can use a coffee filter technology. <laughs> they, they get trapped on it and smaller cells go through. So my very wonderful colleague, Patrizia Patrolini at the Pasteur Institute, developed this machine called Isolation by Size of epithelial tumors, that's what it looks like. And the idea is that some very large studies have been done looking at people at high risk of cancer. For example, heavy smokers who already have COPD, you do a liquid biopsy, which simply means 10 cc's of blood and pass it through this ISET machine, which isolates by size. 
and you can detect imagine perry you can detect one cancer cells from 50 billion normal cells wow and this study was published in 2014 with lots of patients i want to show you just one patient from here 54 year old male heavy smoker copd they do a liquid biopsy on him in 2009 and what do they find a giant cell in fact 47 circulating giant cells like this compare this giant cell to the size of the normal blood cell now you know what i'm talking about okay so clearly we felt okay pathologists saw this and they said sure this is cancer where is it where's the lung cancer all kinds of things are being done to find lung cancer ct scans nothing is found for 4 years and then a ct scan detected a tiny tumor this is removed and the patient who had invasive cancer but stage 1a is cured for 9 years now peri but what it showed was that the first cell could be detected 4 years before the actual cancer appeared on the cat scan so, okay you see what so, i'm talking about okay so go back to that giant cell now, i'm going to show you many of these yeah, let so, me show you so i got a question yeah so this cell you said it's not quite actually cancerous yet no i didn't say that i'm going to show you oh okay all right hang on there okay. so the first thing to note is that these cells can be detected before the tumor arises four years before they are giant in size and they have many copies of chromosome because they have multiple nuclei giant cells were never detected in a normal sample and they ran like hundreds of normal controls so if there is a giant cell in the blood there's cancer somewhere now what are these giant cells they were described first uh, in 1858 with beautiful pictures but they are so rare peri they lie on the side of like thousands and thousands of cells there'll be one giant cell at the corner and people just kept dismissing it by saying oh that's a dying cell then many people started noticing that after we give chemo and radiation to solid tumors like lung cancer pancreatic cancer then they relapse after a while when that relapse is occurring you see a lot of giant cells so i want to show you now a video but first let me explain the video ken pienta brilliant head of the oncology urologic oncology program and prostate cancer program at hopkins and you know him very well of course perry but just wanted to say it for the audience he developed this amazing technology you inject prostate cancer cells here and they go and land into these little diamonds one cell at a time and start growing there and then you inject drug from the other end but the drug is injected at a gradient of concentration that goes from high to low which means the concentration of drug is highest in this area for example okay so this is ken's movie i just want to share it uh, with his uh, of course it's all available on youtube you can watch i'm going to now focus on this tiny area at the right lower bottom and take you to the next slide and show you uh, what happens so the highest concentration of drug was around here these uh, prostate cancer cells start dying and now you see that the area has become pretty much black compared to this diamond for example right you can see that and suddenly you see the appearance of these rapidly moving giant cells start coming 
and very soon peri what you see is something never seen before that these giant cells start birthing smaller cells all these smaller cells start coming from the giant cells and before you know it this whole area now starts getting filled up more and more with the smaller cells and the giant cells go away and now this whole tumor has come right back after you see what what i'm saying okay so actually i'm a little probably didn't completely under so maybe the last 30 seconds i i'm not sure i was completely following about the giant cells coming back and what yeah, i'm going to show you another picture about explaining it basically i'm saying that these polyploidal giant cancer cells polyploid simply means many nuclei or many copies of the chromosome giant cancer cell formation happens because when a normal cell divides into two it doubles its dna and chromosomes and then the nucleus divides into two and that then the cell divides into two well if there is a cell peri that is a normal cell that is being stressed what stress infection inflammation some kind of you know toxins in the environment which are going to kill the cells so the cells receive a normal cells will receive a signal fight or flight either you develop a strategy to survive this swamp all this poison or you're going to die so the way giant cells are formed is giant cell formation is a normal response to stress in two ways they are formed in first and this will explain your question the first way is that the cell will keep doubling its dna but the cell won't divide the nucleus will divide and the cell becomes larger and larger and now has many nuclei it becomes a giant cell but it doesn't divide why because it's kind of hibernating the most uh, vulnerable part of the cell is when it's undergoing mitosis when it's actually dividing into two that's when they get killed they are most vulnerable so these cells just divide the dna but they don't undergo mitosis which means the cell doesn't divide and another way is by smaller cells simply fuse together again from ken pienta look at this movie sorry i'm going to just concentrate on these two cells so these were prostate cancer cells that are given chemotherapy look what happens so they are under stress you see how they merged ooh fusion so that's another way basically ken has shown these huge polyploidal which means many nuclei large giant cells compare them to the blood cell size these are from metastatic prostate cancer courtesy of ken so basically how come no one talks about these giant cells actually there are hundreds of papers jin song lu yes. henry hang ken pienta all these people have been talking for years about giant cells and it has been noted they appear after uh, chemotherapy my hypothesis is no they don't appear only after chemotherapy giant cells are the first cells so what about in leukemia i'll show you a few pictures from my lab and then i'll shut up so we crispered in a mutation which is very common 90% patients have this mutation if they have a certain kind of mds and we introduce this mutation through crispr in in k562 cells which are just leukemia cells growing in a petri dish very abnormal anyway 
But when we introduced uh, the mutation, it caused stress. Then we treated the cells with chemotherapy. It caused more stress. And the result both times was giant cell formation. So like, look, these are the wild type cells growing happily. When we and CRISPR the mutation, how many giant cells appeared? Wow. Again, happily growing. When we treated with chemotherapy, how many giant cells appeared? And in fact, these giant cells come wild type, meaning normally growing. And then this is the mutated K700E, giant cell with multiple nuclei, lots of chromosomes. And, you know, Henry Heng calls it genome chaos. But to me, chaos sort of sounds like it's uh, the cell is confused. I'm saying, no, this is a very well-conserved normal response. It's genome reorganization. Yeah. Cells are finding strategies to survive this stress. I just show you this beautiful picture from my lab. We fixated our camera onto one giant cell and followed it for days and nothing happened until three days later, we saw it started birthing these cells, these tiny cells. And Jin Song Lu at MD Anderson calls it somatic cell pregnancy. Yes. So basically here you see many giant cells birthing these, they literally are getting pinched out from these giant cells. Again, another, all from my lab. Look at one giant cell, uh, Perry, how many cells it's given birth to. And then after a few days, all we see are these small cells. And the problem is this is where we diagnose cancer and we missed all the first cell business. No. What are so, these small ones? That's the real cancer. These are the ones that cause relapse of the disease. So if you were looking at prostate cancer, these would be the prostate cancer cells. And they are the ones which are the small cells. You know, they're not giant. So, so is these, it like the giant cell is the queen bee and the little cells are the worker bees. And now it's swarming all over the place with worker bees and it's basically all over. And remember that the giant cell has many, many nuclei, so it can give copies of its DNA to be 2N DNA. Now, most of these uh, kinds of cancers have just 2N DNA. So what is the new model? I'm saying that the first response to major stress is wholesale genome-wide aneuploidy, not genome chaos. I call it genome reorganization, but it's the same thing. It's, and uh, the same it's proposed a hundred years ago by Boveri and has been championed. And by the way, Perry, I covered this extensively in my book where I talk about the aneuploidy model rather than this reductionist one tiny mutation, which is a random DNA copying error. No, I'm saying absolutely not. That model we have been working on for 50 years and it hasn't helped. It's time to change the model. Yeah. Yep. And so basically... It's a conserved response to stress and recurrent genetic mutation that we are obsessing over all the time, sequencing, sequencing, sequencing is a late step. Cancer is not due to DNA random errors. It's the result of a conserved response and the gene-centric model has not proven to be correct. A new model is proposed that first there's some kind of stress. We don't even look for that in patients who have cancer. We are just so concentrated on the cell, but actually the cell is responding to some stress in the tissue around it. We need to study that. And then cells either fuse together, I showed you the video from Ken, to ride out the stress, or they keep doubling DNA but don't divide, I showed you that. 
and giant cells are produced, if the stress goes away, giant cells go away. But if the stress persists, they wait silently until one of them, one in 50, one in a billion will start producing smaller cells. That's why cancer is so rare, even though giant cell formation is not rare because tissues are being stressed all the time. Smaller cells are when we diagnose. I wanted to see, this is all shown in solid tumors by our colleagues. No one has looked at liquid tumors. What are liquid tumors? Leukemia, pre-leukemia, what I study. So I have had this machine, Perry, for three, four years. And I've studied tons of patients and I started finding these giant cells, compare them to, the, they look exactly like solid tumor cells, right? Where you saw the first giant cell. I'm finding these giant cells all over the place now because I'm looking for them. You see that difference, you find what you look for. And this is the Kristen Whalen paper, cell cycle stress in normal human cells, a route to first cells. We can talk about this in a minute. I'm coming to my end. I published this paper about giant tetraploid cells back in 1985, along with my husband, uh, late husband, Harvey Priceless. So no one can blame me for being a newcomer to the field. I've been <laughs> I'm an old hag, I, I admit. Now it's important to get other people on your side because otherwise lone voices die. So I built consensus by organizing the oncology think tank and have 30 leaders from academia and industry. We had lots of meetings and we published an opinion paper, which was published in Scientific American in January, a couple of months ago. And there are all these authors with me. And the, what is the idea? The idea is very simple. We need to screen for the first cell. Early detection is the name of the game identify a group of individuals at high risk of developing cancer. Who are they? Now, I don't want anyone to get scared, but one in five new cancers appear in a cancer survival. Yeah. Instead of getting scared, I think you should help find the first cell so that we can prevent it from happening. Do the math yourself, Perry. If there's 1.8 million new cases which will be diagnosed in America this year, 350,000 will appear in a cancer survivor. So all these eight institutions, they are the major institutions in the country. MD Anderson alone sees 80,000 cancer survivors a year. No one is looking at their liquid biopsy, 10 cc's of blood is all you need to see if we can find the first cell. Dana-Farber, University of Chicago, I mean, these are the top institutions. We are proposing to have a first cell center for cancer survivors. Simply start a tissue bank. All of us are seeing cancer survivors. We just collect their, how non-invasive can you get? Just uh, 20 cc's of blood, saliva, urine, and feces every six months. 40,000 samples will be collected in three years. Five to 8,000 cancer cases will appear. Now, this is not recurrent cancer. It's not like someone had lung cancer and now it has recurred after three years. This is a new second cancer. That's what I'm saying. Mm. And the best example is my own husband, Harvey. He had his first cancer at 34, survives it, and gets the second one at 57, which kills him. So all we are saying is now you'll have five to 8,000 Patients who have developed a second cancer, but we have all their samples. We can go pull them out, look at those captured giant cells. And basically, we have to strap the giant cells 
and do the multiomics on the giant cells, the transcriptomics, metabolomics, proteomics, genomics, not on those tiny little cells the way we are doing, but on the giant cells. And I'm saying that eventually the stress that is causing the giant cells to form, stress will change the metabolites in the plasma and serum. That's what we need to look at. What is the stress the organ is facing that it's making giant cells? And that's where I wanted to stop. And at the end, will you, I hope, give me like two minutes to show this uh, video about why I'm so invested into this. I can show it now or later. You can yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Show it. Okay. So guys, in my first podcast with Perry, we talked extensively about this young man, Andrew, who at 22 got diagnosed with brain tumor, which was uh, nine centimeter and it couldn't be removed completely. So it means we knew from day one that this poor boy's chances of surviving are 0.00. There's nothing we can do to fight this malevolent, malicious enemy. And for me, it was a very important, uh, particularly important because Andrew was the best friend of my daughter since they started eighth grade. And Andrew was not Shahrazad's boyfriend. Andrew was gay. Uh, but uh, at 22, he gets diagnosed with this horrendous brain cancer. And then he died the most tormented, the most painful death possible at 23 years of and his sister, who's two years older than him, she's 25 years old, she put together this movie. I want everyone to see this. You know why? Because four years later, two weeks ago, his mother, Elena, who's standing here with Andrew, her only son, Elena called me two weeks ago, Perry, and said, Azra, you won't believe it, but now my best friend, she has just been diagnosed with glioblastoma multiforme, the same tumor Andrew had. And it is extensive. And she said, Azra, have you made any progress in the last four years? Can we offer something different to my friend? How ashamed I felt. We have made zero progress since this poor boy died. Why? How many Andrews have to die? How many people have to die? So just two minutes or a minute and a half, whatever, of this little video that to remind ourselves that this is why we are doing what we are doing. This is why there's an urgency. This is why I ask all of you, and I'm so grateful to Perry for letting me speak. New York is in New York without you, love. So far in a few blocks to be so low. And if I call you from first,
Wow. So what do you think about your first cell center unit's ability to help a person like Andrew? Does this apply to Andrew's cancer? Of course, every cancer. And first, let me say, Perry, how much I appreciate the few moments of silence you gave to memory of Andrew. It means the world to me. And secondly, yes, I'm asking for so little. Eight credible institutions have come together to say, we will give you all the samples on our cancer survivors, Ezra. Let's do it. Let's make the center. Even if I'm proved wrong for everything I said about giant cells and my new model, let's say it's all proved wrong. We still have the samples. We'll find something new. Yeah. And what am I asking for? A couple of million dollars a year for three years. I mean, and no one wants to give that. I don't understand, Perry, with this rich and affluent country, why am I constantly out there with my begging bowl? Why? When all the 95% resources are being wasted on mouse models and on all kinds of mindless research. I had a therapist who told me an addiction is anything you lie to yourself about. <laughs> yeah, very true. Well, I, I don't have any words that are adequate to respond to that little film clip. That was beautiful. Everybody knows some version of Andrew. I know a bunch. And well, going back to something you said earlier, you know, when I wrote Evolution 2.0, you know what? It's, it's what I like to think of as a bottom of the swamp book. Like you go as far down to the depths of a, of a question as you know how to get. And like you find something down there. And what I found was 
this random mutation idea is literally the biggest mistake in the history of science. And as an engineer, I could understand like, no, no, like nothing works this way. Why, how on earth did like uh, literally a million biologists and doctors get indoctrinated with this idea? But they are. I found that people actually started getting what I was trying to say when I started talking about cancer. It's like, no, those cancer cells aren't just random. Like they're trying to figure out how to survive. They're smart. And like, you know, the word intelligent has been banned from biology for about forever. Like, well, those giant cells are smart. And all you're saying is, I got a coffee filter and I can find them. I can find one in 50 million. Billion. Billion, sorry. Right. And now, so tell me if I got this right. So I, I see like a total 80-20 in this. So the 80-20 I see is 20% of post-cancer people are going to get cancer, but only 20% of 20% are going to, pre-cancer people are going to get cancer. So you've got an 80-20 just by picking the people that are coming back for their six months checkup, right? It's like, yes. okay, these people are four times as likely or maybe more, I don't know, maybe 16 times as likely, right? They're way more likely to get cancer than the average person. So since we know this, every time they come back, we want 20 cc's of blood and some saliva and stool samples. They're already coming into this thing. And, and by the way, everybody here doesn't know, all these people you're talking about are members of our cancer and evolution group. Like, I know all these people. I'm kind of amazed that I know all these people, but here we are, right? And like, they're all willing to cooperate. And if we can get together a couple million dollars a year, we can have the first cell center. And the way I'm thinking, tell me if this is right, this isn't stage 0.001, this is stage negative one. Yes, that's the way to say it, yeah. It's like you've got stage negative one cancer, which isn't even cancer yet. So we call it a first cell. So Mrs. Johnson, don't get scared. Don't get worried. But we've got, so I'm like future pacing this, like maybe two or three years from now. We have not only do we've detected this, we we're actually starting to find some ways to reverse engineer what are the stresses in your system that's causing this, we can nip this in the bud with some medical intervention right now, but we can also put you on a program to reduce your stress, like your pancreas is not happy right now, your liver is not happy right now, and with certain nutrition, or maybe you need to do mindfulness, or maybe you need to exercise, or maybe you need to forgive your ex-husband, or whatever, okay, but like, you're not going to get cancer, and if I have anything to say about it, Mrs. Johnson, you're going to stop doing the stuff that was given to you. In the, do I have this right? You have it perfectly right. I'm going to copy you in my next talk. 
well, I'm sold on this. I think this is great. Thank you, Perry. As you said, it is a collaborative effort, but I have put out a bold model. Other people have been too cautious and they're saying, oh, this causes relapse in solid tumors. This causes drug resistance. I'm saying, no, this is the first cell. Prove me wrong. Let's go prove me wrong. But eventually what I want to do, and this can happen within two, three years, because we'll have all the samples in two, three years. I'm not talking a pie in the sky 10 years later. I'm talking now. What I want to come out of these samples is a very quick, very simple test from just the 10 cc's of blood, serum markers, metabolite markers to show there is stress, what kind of stress. And for the first time, like you said, Perry, we will actually deal with what's causing cancer. It's not that tiny little cell is not causing cancer. It's the stress that's forcing these cells to react badly. It's not random for God's sake. And you and I are soulmates in this, that we don't believe such an important issue in biology is random. I just don't buy it. And I'm the one fighting this in biology. No, it's demonstrably stupid but it has become the foundation of an entire fields of science, okay? It's also in viruses, like that's a whole nother thing. Viruses mutations aren't, the macro mutations aren't random either, but like that's like a whole other subject. So like this thing has tentacles that goes everywhere. And what I'm thinking here as we're talking is, so you get your first cell center and you like, well, these are the, like, there's a hundred causes, but these are the 12 most common. That's like three fourths of everything. And we can put people on these 12 things. And then we can like, imagine if as a result of this, we had a comprehensive scientific model of stress itself. <laughs> Yeah, the holistic way rather than the reductionist way. And so much can be done with this whole, you know, model of facing up to reality and saying, yes, there is stress. There could be internal stress in the organs just as a consequence of aging because we are not handling garbage disposal in the tissues well. We're not, our immune system is a less efficient, misses a few things. And there are mutations also contributing but those mutations even are not all random. I mean, I just can't explain. And I don't know what made me, you know, come to you. I came to you, Perry, because I know that you and I think alike about these things and you will provide me the podium to be able to say all this because other people are even scared to let me speak up. Well, you know, Right now, we have a, an epidemic of cancel culture, right? Like there's social media and people getting banned. Well, you know, I look at this and I'm like, this ain't new to me. Like in science, if you're friends with the wrong people, you're out. Okay. And I've been watching this for a long time. And the evolution space, I think, is the worst. Now, it's getting better, but like, 10 years ago, it was hideous. And so here we are in cancer. I'm like, well, 
like the thing that impressed me most about you was that you got away with writing the first cell. I was like, so like you didn't have to go move to an island off the coast of Newfoundland and get security guards. Like, how did you not get like taken out by the mafia for saying this? And you're like, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I still don't know why you didn't get taken out, but the profession actually respected what you had to say. And so, so here we are, and we're like calling out the elephant in the room, like, this is not working, but, and now you're taking another stand, which you didn't really go into this in the first cell, but you're like, these giant cells, we can detect them, we can figure out the stresses, we can nip stage negative one cancer in the bud, and we're going to do it, and all we need is a platform of people that'll listen to us, and oh, guess what? The NIH is not going to fund this, and NSF is not going to fund this, because there's too much legacy stuff. Now, now this has all kinds of parallels in business, Azra. Entrepreneurs totally understand this. Okay, so think about it. IBM should have led the world with PCs or, and DEC should have done it before them. And they didn't, right? And the taxi industry should have come up with Uber and they didn't. And the hotel industry should have come up with Airbnb and they didn't. And reform never comes from the inside. I know this, my friends know it, my colleagues know it, we expect it. Because when you have a business, okay, think about it. Like, I sold my car three years ago, and I take Uber. Okay? Like, for me, it totally makes sense. In fact, it's less expensive, and I can get stuff done while I'm going somewhere, right? I can type on my computer. I can read a book. So much more productive. Now, I would never, ever, ever have switched, sold my car, and took a taxi. Okay, the pie is 10 times bigger now. Think Uber Eats in a pandemic, right? That's been a big help for restaurants and people that want to eat a pizza and can't go to a restaurant because all the restaurants are closed, right? Look at that, right? The taxi industry would have never come up with it. Why? Because they're making too much money on the old model and the new model kills the old model before the new model becomes 10 times bigger. And this is the problem the cancer industry is in. I've had this conversation like with 50 people. Chemo costs $60,000. Let's say we come up with a cure for cancer that costs $6,000. What's the new wing of the hospital gonna do when their $60,000 upsell become $6,000. How are they going to pay their meditation bills? Centers. They'll have meditation centers to reduce the stress. Well, right. But meditation centers don't cost $60,000, right? So, so this is where we're at. And it's going to take outsiders to do this. And Azra is asking for money. And like, we need generous philanthropists. And the philanthropists are going to be outsiders. And there's going to be you know, there's people going to watch this video. They could stroke a million dollar check without breaking a sweat. And they're probably going to do it because their wife died of cancer two years ago and nobody could do it. And they, and they watched her get down to 86 pounds and like all of that 
dreadful hell. And they're like, yeah, I'll do anything to fix this, even if it might not work. So here you go, Ozra. So how do we get in touch with you and how does this work? I can't tell you, I always feel deeply moved talking to you because Perry, in the final analysis, really people are dying, right, left and center. And I'm glad you always keep bringing that up. And it's your friend whose wife died or, you know, my cousin who just died. I mean, it's got to stop somewhere. So I'm very moved. Thank you so much. The ask is very little. I'm asking everybody to, to guide me how to raise this money and support all these institutions. It's uh, just to collect the samples. Once we have the samples, you see, I want to capitalize. I want to bring capitalism to uh, early detection because we set a new goal and we financially incentivize that goal. Everyone and their grandmother will want to rush that way. How do we do it? You tell me, you are the chief in this. Okay, so I got a couple of thoughts here. So anybody who's a science geek will know the term emergent property. An emergent property is like, it would not be obvious if you were studying water molecules and you didn't know anything about water, that if you have mist in your refrigerator, it's going to condensate into a snowflake and that every single snowflake will be different than the other ones. And like, but well, guess what? You know, the, the snow and the trees and the mountains, like that's an emergent property of water getting cold, right? So, you know, it's like you create a set of conditions and something completely new happens. So this happens in business all the time. And I just described it with Uber. Okay, you start with, well, what if taxi was just an app and anybody could be a taxi as long as they had an app, like what would happen? Well, it's really hard to fast forward five years and figure out, well, what would happen is they come up with this thing called Uber Eats where the people with crappy cars that you don't really want to ride in can deliver pizza. And then a pandemic comes along and then this becomes like the only way for a restaurant to survive. That is an emergent property. Nobody can like roll the tape and quite figure that out before it actually happens. You just have, right? And apps are an emergent property of a cell phone, which is a combination of all of these, you know, internet and microprocessors. So this is how it always happens. Okay, so you go, well, how's the medical industry going to survive if we could just detect cancer and prevent it from happening? You know, what are we going to do with all these people in these facilities? Oh, trust me. They'll find something useful to do. There's not like any lack of problems in the world, but you may have to take all that biology and genomics and everything and chemistry and go like apply it to something else, right? But like what would happen if we knocked out cancer and we weren't spending 5% of the gross national product, you know, killing people with chemotherapy, you know, then what would we do? Well, trust me, like something, something really great, but like people ha just have to have the faith to do this. So I'm going to jump the gun a little bit. See, like you barely even know anything about this, but about in December, I formed a 501c3 called Science Research 2.0. And we fund cancer research and science research that the traditional academy won't fund because it doesn't fit the old models. Okay. 
And like, I had a scientist tell me, he goes, I hate applying for funding at NIH and NSF and the government. He goes, here's why. He goes, I tell my grad students, do not let on that we're doing anything revolutionary or we won't get the money. Just like give Homer Simpson the donuts and the revolutionary stuff is just going to have to hitch a ride. And he goes, so I prefer getting money from private sources instead. And so Azra, when I talk to my friends, they all understand what I'm talking about. They don't have any difficulty. Like everything I'm describing to you, this is their life experience. And they know disruptors, like nobody wants a disruptor. Like to us, maverick is like an, a cool word. In, in medicine, maverick is like, you know, a crazy person. Well, yeah, we're crazy. And so is Einstein. And so are the founders of Google. And so is Bill Gates. And so is Steve Jobs. They were all crazy. Right. And Ezra, you're crazy. And you're, you're going to change the world. Or we're going to at least bet on it. So like, I want to help you do this. If you want to fund Ezra's project, email evolution at evo2.org, evo number two.org. And we'll figure it out. John Carell is the new CEO of Science Research 2.0. He's been helping me with this. Actually, I've got a bunch of entrepreneurial friends that have been helping me with this. And that, like, this has to happen. So, like, I didn't know I was going to be saying this. I'm going to have to call John, like, John, guess what? We have a new project. But let's see this thing happen because this totally makes sense. This is totally, like, right down the fairway of what we believe in you know, I've been studying evolution for 17 years. I've been studying cancer for one year. This lines up with everything I've seen and everything that the cancer and evolution group has been saying, and it's time for change and let's have the revolution. So the Martin Luther of cancer, Azaraza, thank you. Thank you so much, Perry. It has been a pleasure. And for just want to add that everyone can also go on my website azraraza.com or the first cell center or just the first cell.com and you will have a donate button but send me a message tell me what to do how to do this properly just like Perry did in such a short period of time you've given so many new ideas and laid into context what I'm dealing with really and that I really need help to get this done in the next two, three years. So Elena, Andrew's mother and other people don't have to call me and ask me and, you know, what have you done in the last four years? Any improvement? And I don't, shouldn't be uh, having to say no. I really am deeply, deeply grateful to you, Perry, for everything that you are doing through your podcast, through what, how you are trying to change people's thinking because if we really start uh, a radically different approach, then I'll end by saying this, that once we bring the word processor, no one's gonna worry about the typewriter. Yes, yes, perfect, yes. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Azra. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.